reading is from Psalm, 1, or Psalm 30 on page 510 if you're in the Blue Bible. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, for O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Um, my name is Evan Skelton. Again, if you are just now joining us, uh, we are glad that you're here, and we want to get to know you. Um, please do make sure that you connect with us before you leave today, or at least leave us a connect card so we have a way to connect with you, follow up with you. As a reminder, uh, in these, again, strange times, uh, and, but uh, even as they are, there is conflicting opinions about what the mask mandate is or what's wisest in the county, we've asked that for those who attend our services, if you would wear your mask uh, when you uh, 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 ever move from your seat, when you come or leave, we're kind of abiding by what we're calling the restaurant rule. And so you are uh, welcome to, to remove your mask if you feel so comfortable when you sit down, but when you're moving to or from your seat, we'd ask you that you keep your mask with you. Um, and uh, we'll update you as if those policies do change um, over the next few months. We encourage patience with one another again. Uh, we're having to make a lot of uh, difficult calls in these uh, circumstances, and our job is to love one another well, but demonstrate in the church what is not being demonstrated in the rest of the culture, what it is to demonstrate love when we have different opinions. And so um, we're going to uh, nonetheless be in Psalm chapter 30, and I am very excited to be there with you, although it's a bit, a bit bitter, bittersweet for me because um, we are, this will be our last week in the Psalms for the summer before we uh, break for a three-week series, which we're calling Compelling Community, really on our mission and vision as a church. Um, we're going to be looking at the scriptures and what it says a church should be and how its community compels us or compels others uh, to, to give their allegiance to Christ, to make sense of the promises he makes about his coming kingdom. And so I encourage you to join us for those for those weeks uh, starting next week as we look at our first core value gospel-centered worship but again we are going to be in the psalms today and it is sad because every every time uh, we spend this extended portion of our time in this prayer book this book of worship a, a book that has been sung by christians by god's people for literally thousands of years including sung by jesus himself a book that is very much about him every time we do that it changes me too it it makes my worship of God louder. And I have to tell you this morning, I don't know if it was from reading our weekly wire or what, but nonetheless, 
I was, I, was gonna, I was about ready to cry right here in the front, just hearing the voice, your voices this morning and offering that to the Lord. Um, just so good, so good, so sweet for me. And I feel like the Psalms produce that in us as well, particularly me. So maybe it's not, well, it's not entirely selfish, but nonetheless, I, I, I would do it just for my sake because I need my worship to grow louder for the Lord as well. But we have one more psalm to learn from in Psalm chapter 30, which you've already heard read. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles out, or you can look on your phone if you would so like. Um, And it's a psalm that bounces, if you were listening to the words as we go, between prosperity and loss, between weeping and joy, between mourning and dancing, between mercy and guilt. In many ways, it is a perfect psalm to wrap up on because it summarizes so many of the experiences that we have in walking with God throughout our lives. And I want to make some observations about what this psalm teaches us, particularly about how to walk with God in our losses and our gains. And we're going to split our time in three parts. Three state, well, two statements and then some practical observations. The first is, there is danger in comfort. Second, there is comfort in loss. And then finally, some observations on praying in the pit. Okay, you ready? I'm excited for it. So, first, let's start by looking at Psalm 30. Open it up. We're going to begin with that first statement, which I think is essential for us to understand the circumstances of this psalm and its effect it should have on our lives, what uniquely it is saying to us about God. There is danger in comfort. Now, like most of the psalms, if you are not familiar with this book, this book is a book of prayers that is made to give language to us, uh, to help us in talking to God. But we, like many of these psalms, including this one, we don't have the specific circumstances in which they were first written or uttered. And I think that's good because we can take these words as our words and pray them in related circumstances, more so than if we knew the specific circumstance of what was going on. But still, if we listen closely, it seems that David, at this point in his life, or at least right before he writes this psalm, had become very very sick. You know, I have to tell you, we can sometimes forget these people in the Bible are actual people who faced some of the same issues that we ourselves face with bodies like ours, but they interpreted everything in their lives theologically, looking to what God was revealing and doing even when they were sick as a dog. Anyways, David seems to have been very, very sick in this passage, possibly considering his own death, given the references to Sheol, the the place of the dead. But he also refers to what he calls the pit, fearing that he could end up going down to the pit. In other places where that phrase is used, it is used specifically of those God sends to the pit, sends to their own death. And he does so because of their sin. He does so because of their rebellion and their rejection of him. In other words, David fears that in his sickness, that God um, is sending him to the pit, at least in some measure, because of his own anger, because of God's anger with him. And that's not to say that every 
sickness is because of our sin. Please don't hear me saying that, nor that if you uh, end up catching COVID, you should go uh, on a sin hunt in your life, let alone if you get cancer. Uh, It is certainly not the case that every sickness is because of a sin, but David at least seems to see in his sickness, this particular sickness, to recognize that this is the hand of God at work in discipline. I don't think we have to read very far into the psalm to see why. What exactly God seems to be correcting in David's life. You see, by the time he writes this psalm, he's on the other side of this sickness, praising God. But not for the reasons that you might expect. We read this and we expect that David is largely praising God because he's no longer on his bed. He's no longer maybe Puking into a bowl. He's no longer, sorry for the gritty details, but these, but these, it's, we might think that it's because he's no longer miserable. But he's not just praising God because he's not sick anymore, like so many of us would have been, but because he emerges from this particular sickness with an entirely different perspective on himself. In fact, notice verse 1. What does he say? I will extol you, Lord. We meet a lot of, we see a lot of words for worship in the Bible, words that we don't often use for worship, let alone in everyday conversation. What does it mean to extol something? To extol, in many ways, is literally to raise something up. Throughout the Bible, this Hebrew word is often used as something raises, something is lifted, including the waters in the flood that lifted and raised throughout the earth. This word literally means to raise up God, not as if God could be lifted higher than he is, but to be lifted in our own estimation. Here's what he means. David is eager for God to be seen as higher in his life, greater in his estimation, higher than any other name. He wants God to be treated as the highest and best being that he actually is. He wants to lift God up. In many ways, this is why Christians raise their hands in worship. If you wonder why Christians do this strange thing, it's not because they're just really living in that moment, but because it is a living symbol of lifting high the name of the Lord, of offering him adoration, extolling his name. They want to lift God higher in their own estimation. He wants to lift up God. But why? Not simply because God deserves it, or because God has brought him the relief that he asked for. I think that that's true. But because this entire experience has humbled David in a way that he desperately needed. You see, it took sickness, his sickness, to reveal an attitude that he had nurtured without even realizing it, an attitude that was a danger to himself and to others, and it took his health falling apart to finally realize it. Where do we find that attitude? I think in verse 6, which I would encourage you to read with me. As for me, referring to how he had seen himself, had begun to see himself before all of this took place. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. This, friends, is the language of pride. And David not only realizes... He not only realizes pride, but he realizes what led to it. A very unexpected thing for us. He says it was his prosperity. 
In other words, his peace, his stability, his comfort, his strength and security. And for many of us, prosperity, it sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't want that kind of life? A life that's finally stable and secure. A life that you don't have the stresses and anxieties in which you currently have. A life in which you can expect that tomorrow will look a lot like today. It's one of the reasons we work so hard. It's why we avoid certain people in conversations. It's why we spend the money that we have the way that we do. We want prosperity. We want to stand strong, as David puts it. Now, that doesn't, those desires aren't necessarily bad, but David understands that comfort can actually be the, one of the most dangerous threats to someone following God. Why? Well, I think about this particularly this summer, particularly for you students who, when uh, on summer, on summer break, when your normal responsibilities and stresses are suspended. I know many students that I talk to struggle more in their relationship with God when they don't have much on their plate than when they do have a lot on their plate. They struggle more with their relationship with God when things are fine than when things are not fine. Why is that? I think because in times of comfort and seeming peace, we lose a very important sense that we need and depend upon God for everything. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we find a very fascinating picture of this. Just as God's people ready themselves to enter the land that God had promised them, a land they had longed to for over 40 years since God had first redeemed them as slaves from Egypt and led them across the wilderness, a place where they only knew lack as their daily reality. They longed to be in their promised land. And just as, about, as they are about to go in, something their parents literally died waiting for. God gives a surprising warning. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full. Notice that's a, that's a life many of us are longing for, and they were longing for too. But what, what does he warn them? What does he see as the danger when they eat and are full? Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, in other words, prosperity, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is, was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
Friends, God knows us really well. He knows how easily the very things that we live for and when we receive them, the very things that should lead to thankfulness, to praising a very generous God, sometimes those very things, stability, comfort, peace, prosperity, lead us to turn our eyes not to God but to ourselves, to figure by the strength of my own hand I have got myself here. Thanks God very much for providing in the past, but I'll take it now. God knows us very well. Now I'm Barring this illustration, to make this a bit clearer, from someone else, but nonetheless, I think about this as the difference between dogs and cats. Um, and I would say this as a cat owner. Okay, so anybody own dogs here? Okay, how about own cats? Okay, so uh, the, a dog, you'll probably be able to empathize with this, but a dog will receive shelter and food and affection and love from his master and thinks to himself, wow, look at all of this. My master must be a god. A cat receives the very same things, food and affection and shelter and love, and thinks to himself, wow, I must be a god. Many of us are not like dogs, we are like cats, looking at the things that we have received and saying, wow, this says that I must be the center of this story, that God himself must be here to serve me Friends, we should, not, we, we, uh, we should be like dogs, but if we're honest, we are more like cats. Our security and our comforts make us forgetful. Forgetful, particularly, of how God's kindness has protected and provided for me in the past. Forgetful that we have no good thing apart from what God and his kindness chose to provide. Forgetful that the reason... My mountain is strong, which is a metaphor of security, stability, a satisfied life, as verse 7 puts it. The reason my mountain is strong is because of his favor. Not because I've arrived, not because I've achieved it, not because I've earned it, but because of his own kindness. But more importantly, wealth, comfort, and security can make us, in making us forgetful, make us arrogant, Instead of praising the God who gives us our daily bread, we begin to say in our hearts, as Deuteronomy puts it, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me here. Or as David puts it, I shall never be moved. Comfort not only can lead us to take what we have, to lead us what we, to, to take what we have for granted, but to assume a kind of independent spirit towards God. To live as if we don't need God very possible, even if you consider yourself a Christian, even if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, to live functionally as if there was no God. To live as we, if we didn't need him. Which is only one short step, I have to tell you, to treating God as if he were in the way to my happiness. A threat to what I really want. It's only a short step to t- then turning and resenting not just forgetting God himself. Sometimes getting the thing that I most want can actually lead us to trust in ourselves, in our abilities and plans, rather than the God who has provided it all. I was listening to a couple recently who praise God that they have a very thriving and healthy marriage. 
The wife, interestingly, which many of us would wish we had, we want a healthier marriage. We want to have more friendship with our spouse. And I think, in many ways, that's what God wants for us as well. We experience our love for God in the context of that relationship, if that's what he has for us, right? Now, again, to those who are single in the room, please don't hear from me that you are more complete a person if you get married. It's not, this is, Jerry Maguire was wrong when he said, you complete me, okay? That's, for those who are couples here, you know that that's not the case, okay? But nonetheless, in this healthy marriage where she said she loved her husband and they had a really rich and good friendship, even in those early years, she said that turned out to be the worst thing for her relationship with God. Because functionally speaking, in those first years, she said to God, God, thanks very much. Glad I got the husband that I wanted. I have what I need now. I'll check in with you later. Sometimes getting the thing we want is the worst thing for us because it leads us not into dependence and gratitude upon God, but apart from it. It leads us to trust in ourselves rather than the God who provides it all. Now, that doesn't mean that if our lives are reasonably content right now, at least in some areas, that we are somehow in sin. And it any, in fact, we are just as prone to sin in suffering and loss. It's not as if God wanted us to walk around miserable all the time, okay? It doesn't, God doesn't call us to crave pain and humiliation. Wealth, security, and comfort are gifts from the Lord, a reason for his thankfulness. But even as they are a gift, comfort is a danger. That's why Jesus says of a particular kind of comfort, Money, what does he say? Money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because money leads us to reject God or make God a means to an end. It could be said of all comfort. Comfort is a danger, especially when it turns to pride. So how do I know whether this kind of pride has set into my life? I think there's several signs of it. But I think one is when we justify how we spend our money and time selfishly saying to ourselves i mean i worked hard for this don't i deserve to live a little i I think i've earned the right to make some demands around here or we begin to look our down our nose on others particularly those who don't have the kind of life that i do saying i mean if they honestly would just work as hard as i have worked they will be able to achieve what i have achieved too if they're without It's their fault, not mine. Or we become stingy with our money, our time, our energy and possessions. Saying, I mean, I've been generous enough. She's just a draining person to be around. I mean, I have to protect my me time. That isn't to say we shouldn't set boundaries in our life, but some of us imagine ourselves to be more open-handed with our stuff, our energy, and our time. We imagine ourselves to be more generous and giving than we actually are. But one of the ways this pride shows up in our passage is when we act as if our lives were completely under our control, when we boast about tomorrow, when we presume Not only that our fate is our own making, but that God owes us a certain kind of life. I have to tell you, people in a society as wealthy as ours are especially prone to this. I know you may not have imagined yourself to be wealthy, but many people around the world don't know where their next meal is coming from. And simply being born in the United States of America 
puts you among the sum of the wealthiest on the face of the planet. Of course, that doesn't mean that you've always felt that way. But just the fact that I can go to the grocery store and pick between 200 varieties of cereal or drive across town to church today without fear that it had been burned down over the weekend or fear about my kids being picked up by militia sets me apart from literally millions around the world today. Isn't it interesting how quickly affluent cultures, wealthy cultures like ours, are growing less and less religious, more and more secular? I don't think because we're finally seeing the light and waking up to the truth or we're so brave to only believe in what we can see, taste, and touch. I think instead the reason we see a culture like ours becoming more and more comfortable without God is because... It's not because we are more smarter and more civilized, but because prosperity makes it easier to maintain a God complex. To think that I can create my own future. I am the master of my own fate. My life is pretty well under my control. If it's not, I know how to get there. Only a really prosperous person can imagine they have no needs, at least no needs that they can't meet on their own. And yet in the Bible, the Bible tells us we are incapable of getting our next breath without God's help. When was the last time you thanked the Lord that you breathed again, that you showed up this morning, that you're not in a hospital bed, you're not in crippling pain? Each breath comes by God's hand, who chose in his wonderful mercy to give and to give and to give me my needs, even when I fail to ask for them. Everything good I have is because of his favor, and God can just as easily remove it. And that's what David learned, that God owes us nothing. As James put it in the New Testament, who knows what tomorrow may bring. That's not to make us more nervous or anxious. Some of you are like, thanks, that's my fear. Every night I wonder, who knows what tomorrow's going to bring? I think there's really genuine comfort, but nonetheless, it is a comfort found in God's character, not our own control. And for David, it took God removing his favor, hiding his face, bringing him down from the mountain to the pit for him to realize this. Which brings us to our second point, there is comfort in loss. Now growing up, How many of you heard from your parents or those you grew up with, I am doing this for your own good? How many of you believed them? Many of us, I know, had complicated relationships with our parents, to be sure. Every single one of your parents, just newsflash, was prone to sin. Some of you are like, amen, sitting next to your parents, okay? Nonetheless, and that goes for me. Some parents even use their authority in abusive ways over you. If that is the case, know that God is not that kind of father toward you. He is everything you wish your father would be and has nothing of their failures and lacks. But I think we can say that part of being a loving parent, even for those who are not parents, part of being a loving parent involves discipline. It involves disagreeing with their children and acting on the knowledge that they really do know better even when their daughter says but i love him often that means a loss a consequence a rebuke maybe a lecture that went on longer than you wanted so that the temporary pain might save you from a greater and more enduring pain down the road 
Still, when it comes to God, I think many of us view God as slow to love and quick to anger. We view God as standing with arms crossed and a sneer on his face, ready for us to prove him wrong, to scoff at us, (laughs) I knew it, and to fly off the handle when we do, or to cut us off entirely. After all, that's perhaps how we are used to others responding to us in failure, whether it was our parents or our coaches or our teachers responding to us in these ways. Now, some of you have incredible parents, but every parent is going to fail you in some way. It's, we expect that right now, God, many of us, we expect that God is standing over us, waiting for us to fail, and we are ready for God, like so many others, to finally give up, to say, well, you made your bed, now sleep in it. Friends, this could be no further from the truth. In fact, I want us to consider David's words in verses 4 through 5. If you want to read these with me, look at your Bibles. Make sure I'm not making this up. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Now again, O you saints is a word for followers of God, those who have been made holy by God. This is a comfort specifically for those who belong to God, okay? For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now, if we are not careful, this verse can sound really cliche, a bit like the Christian version of the sun will come out tomorrow, or every cloud has a silver lining. Our our cliches are endless, I think, sometimes, especially religious people are very good at busting these out in the face of suffering. These verses can come across this way, but what David means isn't that things are bound to get better if you just hope for the best. No, what David is referring to here is the character of a God who is both sovereign and full of mercy. When David says his anger is for a moment, when he says weeping will only hang around for the night, he is speaking as a child who knows that his father's discipline won't last forever. And more importantly, God's discipline has a purpose in mind. It is leading somewhere. It is leading toward joy. It is leading toward good. This is not a God who loses his temper, who needs to circle back and apologize for how he acted to clean up his mess. This is a God instead who, yes, experiences anger, just like any parent who has been disrespected or rejected, but his anger awakens out of love, not selfishness. His anger, particularly towards those who belong to him, is a jealous anger, desiring the love of those who owe him everything but also desiring their truest and best good, even when they disagree with him. And he is committed to seeking it and accomplishing it, no matter the cost. In fact, once he accomplishes what he sets out to do in his discipline, he no longer needs to be angry. He is able to unleash favor and joy that he is bringing to them. I think about this when it comes to disciplining my own children, which doesn't always go well. But one of the things that Grace and I try to do when we are purposeful, and this is only because we've been impacted by so many incredible parents around us, is that we try to 
find some way of expressing our joy in our kids as soon as the discipline is over. It could be a tickle match or just a simple hug or simply looking them in the eyes and saying, I love you, I am glad to be your dad. After all, that's what we experience from God our Father, even when he, in his kindness, disciplines us. The Bible is clear. God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and let bygones be bygones. He loves us far too much for that. Instead, like a good father, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Picking up in verse 10, for speaking of those parents who disciplined, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Isn't that, I just love that, so honest, as seemed best to them. Sometimes for parents, it's like, seems best to us, not entirely sure. But it says of God, he disciplines us for our good. He knows our truest good. He disciplines us for that purpose, that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that honest as well? Of course it seems painful rather than pleasant. No one likes being disciplined, but later it yields a pe- the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Of course discipline, again, is painful at the time. Just ask my kids, but a father who does not correct is a father who quite simply does not care. And over time, Discipline trains us for something that can be gained no other way, a life centered on Jesus himself. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, Paul has the audacity to refer to our afflictions, even the ones that we did not put on, I mean, uh, earn for ourselves, the stuff that comes with just being bound up in a world that is broken by sin. He has the audacity to call our affliction light and momentary, light and momentary, Some of you might think, well, that's a guy who hasn't suffered much. Just read a lot about Paul, and you're going to find, wow, I have nothing on Paul in terms of what he has suffered. But he has the audacity to call his suffering and yours as well light and momentary. Not because he imagines our circumstances aren't sometimes unbearable and seem to never let up. Not because our losses don't sometimes pile on top of losses or that our circumstances are just bound to improve, at least in the future. They may even get worse, as they did for Paul. In fact, this verse, right before it, says that we can feel like we are wasting away day to day in our outer self. No, the reason that he calls them light and momentary, or David says that weeping will only be with us for the night, is because they are preparing us for something better. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis illustrates this in a really interesting way. Now, don't take this as if it was like, it's allegory, there's all sorts of theological problems if you're trying to apply it to the Bible, but take the illustration, okay? Which follows a group, and this is just the, this is the clearest, follows a group that's on a bus trip from hell to heaven, okay? So that doesn't happen, all right? You're never going to read about that in the Bible. But nonetheless, bear with the illustration, they get there, and when they arrived, these that are on this journey, they are overwhelmed by the beauty of heaven, but also simultaneously feel even more terrified by it, exposed by it. It's as if the 
that all that is in heaven is truly real and they were not. As if all that is in heaven is truly substantial, even solid. In fact, the inhabitants of heaven are referred to by those on the bus as the solid ones, meaning that they are the transient ones. They are like ghosts. In fact, in heaven, light, heaven's light cuts right through them like a knife. And they are unable to pluck a daisy there or, or bend a single blade of grass. Even as it's meant to be a fictional work, I think C.S. Lewis is getting at something here that we see throughout the Bible. You see, Paul doesn't, Paul, um, in the passage that we're going to look at in a second, is going to say that God's, that again, not only that our affliction is light and momentary, but that it is preparing us for glory. It doesn't just say that it is bringing God glory, but that it is, although that is certainly true, but it is preparing us for glory. A kind of glory that Paul says has an eternal weight and substance to it. It is more real than any existence we have known. And to be honest, we are simply not ready for it. We are too centered on passing, fleeting, insubstantial things. We are too centered on ourselves, friends. We are too centered on people's opinions or our financial futures. And while we remain centered on ourselves, we actually become less human, not more human. Less substantial. Less absorbed in what is actually true and good and real. We are not ready for what Paul calls the eternal weight of glory. In fact, if we were to be confronted with it right now, apart from Christ's grace in our lives to prepare us for it, which he is even now and will in the end, we would react like some of the visitors in Lewis's story who, when confronted with the reality of heaven, run back to the, boy, the, the bus crying, I don't like it, I don't like it, rejecting the glory of heaven as simply too real for us. It turns out suffering is one of those tools that God uses to center our joy more completely on him to prepare us for glory itself. Now I need to say at this point, not all of our sufferings are ones we have brought on ourselves, okay? You need to hear me say that. The Bible has a large and generous category for innocent suffering, some of us are so accustomed to living in shame that we are just waiting for God to punish us. There are many things which happen to you that you do not deserve, and God himself calls those things evil. But only God is able to make use of even the very worst things, both the things that we have brought on ourselves and those things that come with living in a broken world, to make us better. Romans promises that they conform us into the image of Christ to produce in us a life that rests in and is centered upon Jesus himself. This is where we start to disagree with the Father's discipline who knows our good even though we think we know better. Now I realize depending on what you might be facing it can be difficult to believe that your pain would be passing, that weeping would be for the night, let alone that that pain might be producing something. After all, even as God tells us in the midst of that in the midst of all things he is working for our good it doesn't mean that all things are good or even that every cloud has a silver lining what kind of assurance though that do we have that god can be trusted that he can make use of even the worst sufferings because god produced joy from 
even through the darkest day in human history. After all, the Bible tells us not only that Jesus went to his death on our behalf, on behalf of those who deserved to go down to the pit, but that his pain produced something better, even from death itself, which is further than even David goes, Jesus's cry was heard from the grave. He was restored to life in an even more victorious and final way. His mourning gave way to dancing. Yes, dancing for you Baptists out there. His sackcloth was removed and replaced with a garment of gladness. And if you are a Christian, you share in that victory. You no longer need to fear being finally cut off from God, experiencing the full sorrow of his anger. Jesus has absorbed that consequence entirely. And if you belong to him by faith now, you are treated as a beloved daughter, a beloved son, someone who can call God my God, even when you know you are guilty, even when you know you deserve the Lord's anger, you can expect that he will be your help. He is not merciless, he is merciful. He is not fickle, he is faithful. Your end is not heartbreak, it is healing and help. Because Jesus has been raised, because he was brought up from the grave, you will be too. Friends, if the darkest day in history gave way to the dawn of joy, so can my suffering. As John Piper puts it, not even death can bring a bad ending. When viewed through the cross, a Christian's pain is not only passing, it is productive. And you have every reason to sing all the more loudly. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Which leads to our third, amen. And final point, praying in the pit. I don't, um, I, uh, so I have a friend who experienced a lot of this. Who, um, in high school, one of my closest friends in high school, he, before I knew him, uh, was one of the most popular ones in high school. Did incredible in sports, was very in shape, and had his dream car, just had gotten it, only to have that car wrecked in an accident and got very severely injured on his senior year, time in which he lived for the accomplishments that he had built up in high school. He was in the hospital as the injuries from the accident turned into staph infection, and they ha he literally had to wear a wound vac as he was in the hospital and lost not just all of his physical fitness, but most of his weight. He was emaciated by the end of it, was not able to spend time with his friends, lost out on a promising athletic future, and was left very much at the end of himself. Talking with my friend after all of this, all of those losses, he said, without those losses, he would have become a monster of a human being. Even as he had all that he wanted, it had made him into a man who had a God complex rather than a one who worshipped and depended upon God. In many ways, he said that the father's discipline in losing all things in many ways during those days produced in him a man who could now love his God more than he loved his own reputation. And friends, sometimes that is the path that God has us on as well. And what does it look like then to pray in the midst of our pain? When we have losses, when we look at things that we need God's intervention in, how in the world do we pray? 
My guess is, again, you are carrying some sorrows right now, some unanswered questions. The Bible assumes not only that we need to talk to God, but to talk to God about our doubts, our pain, and our confusion. But how should we pray? Well, I want us to look at David's example in verses 8 through 10. When the bottom fell out of his life, to you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. I pled for mercy, I should say. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. So what in the world do these verses mean? I doubt we have talked to God like this, but I want us to notice something that that David does, even in the midst of his guilt. He doesn't just ask for mercy. Did you notice he argues with God for that mercy? I mean, what audacity. Have you ever argued with God for something? Notice, though, that he doesn't argue on the basis of his track record or even on the basis that he deserves a second chance. David knows far too well to argue that way. He knows that God owes him nothing, but still, he argues, and he argues on the basis of God's own glory and reputation. You see, friends, even in the pit, David longs for something more than his circumstances to be changed. Something even more than his sickness to be over. He longs for God to be worshipped. And what gain is there if he can no longer do what he was made for, to worship God himself? And notice how the proof of how genuine this is. What does David do as soon as God provides restoration? He praises. He doesn't say, thank you God very much, moving on. He dances, yes, dances before God who restored him and restored him for a particular purpose, verse 12, that he might give thanks to God forever. That is the purpose of our lives, friends, to worship and follow God. Is this how you pray? Do your prayers demonstrate more of a preoccupation with your own temporary comforts? Or do you pray that above all, God may be extolled, that he might be lifted up, even if you might need to be brought low, that even from the pit, you might be able to give thanks to his holy name. You want to show it off what it means to be a Christian? Suffer that way. Pray that way. Everybody loses. Everyone suffers. I mean, this is, life is pain, Highness, right? If you know Princess Bride. Okay, this Life is full of sorrow and suffering, friends. A life, life is broken by the reality of sin. Christ is remaking it. Everyone suffers. We want to suffer distinctly as a Christian? Show what it means to desire God's glory more than you want the change to your circumstances. Everybody wants for more peace, for more wealth, more stability and security. Those are okay things to want. But do you want God's glory more? Are you willing to lose in order to make much of Christ? After all, we have a Savior who in the night when he was betrayed said, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, David teaches us to pray this way, and there's actually great freedom found in this way. We can pray and even suffer the loss of all things because we know in the end, for those who belong to God, they have a good father who knows they're good. And there is coming a day in which we will be able to say, yeah, those afflictions were, were significant, Don't get me wrong, but they were light and more momentary to what I know now in the presence of my king. 
There's a coming day in which weeping, if you can believe it, will be a distant memory and God himself will wipe it from our eyes, never to be cried again. We have limited days on this earth and our suffering can be used with purpose. Doesn't mean you're always going to get the explanation. But do you, do you believe that even if you may not see purpose in your pain, that there could be one? Do you, do you believe that even if you, you may not be sure about what God might be doing, that he could and even is doing something good? We have every assurance in the cross. But like you, I'm forgetful, so let's go to the Lord. Lord, we need your help to believe these things, to surrender our lives to a God who is a good father for us, who longs for our truest good to be conformed into Christ's likeness and character, even if we lose a lot along the way. Pray for those who are, who are suffering even now, that they would receive comfort in you, that you would provide them relief. But more importantly, whether they are suffering or their life is stable, that they would demonstrate and pray out of dependence, out of a desire to see you glorified and you lifted up, you made much of and not themselves. And that goes for me too, Lord. I know that in many ways my life may be full of even greater sorrows than I have ever endured. I may face my end as many as the, these others here and wonder what in the world could you be doing? Would you keep my eyes, our eyes upon the cross, the promise of a good father who makes good from even the darkest day? And would many be compelled by suffering Christians who suffer with joy? We pray all of these things for Christ's sake alone. Amen.